You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas. I'm a lead writer for BleacherReport.com and the author of the book, Champion of the World. Joining me, as always, from USA Today, an MMA junkie. It's the man himself, your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, how are you doing this week neurologically? Oh, neurologically? Yeah, neurologically speaking. Neurologically, I'm fine. Okay, good. Because other than that... Every other sense of the word, terrible. Yeah, just bruised and battered all over. Neurologically, though, you were never hurt. The minute I heard Carlos Condit say that he he was neurologically never hurt in that fight, I was like, I'm guessing that's going to be a line that resonates with Chad Dundas. That and, Chad Dundas is really going to love the shit out of this. Well, I mean, and we you that line, if you didn't know before, really made you realize how unfair it is, right, to ask someone how hurt were you there or how hurt were you in this fight. And I feel like... Though Carlos Condit seemed like he tried to answer the question honestly, he also simultaneously like figured out the best way to answer that question and to like reinforce its its silliness. Yeah. Well, and I think you know. It I mean, because I guess the alternative is if he's neurologically okay, he just his face hurt really bad. Right. Uh, and I I mean, kudos to Carlos Condit for. Spending five rounds in the cage with Robbie Lawler, the last of which included a whole lot of Robbie Lawler hitting him with full Robbie Lawler force, and then still being able to reach in the brain bank and pull out a word like neurologically, not not slurring the word or anything and using it in a proper context. I, I don't know if I'd be able to do that right then. Hard not to like Carlos Condit, really. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you get to wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better. The NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them where they can go to sign up. Well, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. That's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. It's like riding a damn bike. I haven't done that in a while. Smooth. Just stepped up and aced it. That's right. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Carlos Condit and Robbie Lawler both let it all hang out last weekend at UFC 195. So I guess a Carlos Condit and or Robbie Lawler fight broke out. And in round number two, with the decision in that fight still dripping with controversy, we don't know what the UFC is going to do next in the welterweight division. Oh, man, though, I think Tyron Woodley is about to get so mad. And in round number three, it was breakfast with Fedor, lunch with King Mo the Wall, and dinner with Sakuraba drinking through a straw. What the hell went on with all this rising bullshit? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. Oh, and Master Tweet Theater, Sir Nigel Longstock is Sir coming Nigel in this Longstock week. Sir Nigel Longstock makes his triumphant return. That is exciting news. But first... Like we always do about this time, 
Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Tom Glenn. And before I read it, let me just say, we got a ton of awesome listener mail this week. It was tough to choose these. Um, I think in this week's Breakfast of Champions, we'll actually do an expanded listener mail rant of the week. Because we got two or three of them that are that are good. Maybe we should just do an all-listener mail rant of the week and therefore not have to write anything for the Breakfast of Champions. Well, now let's not get crazy and trying to get yourself <laughs> off the hook over there. Tom Glenn writes, How about a little love for Ben Rothwell? All we're hearing after UFC 195 is whether Stipe, Stipe. or Overeem will be the next in line to challenge the winner of Verdum versus Velasquez for the belt. Just a few months ago, Stipe, pull, Stipe. <laughs> pulled out of a fight with Ben Rothwell in Dublin due to an injury, only to be rewarded for that by quickly being offered the Arlovsky fight. Meanwhile, Ben, he means Ben Rothwell, <laughs> not, not you, Ben has had to go back to sitting on the sideline even though he's the one that showed up to fight in Dublin. Overeem was brutally knocked out by Ben, again, Rothwell, in the first round not that long ago. What's going on here? Why is he being totally passed over when he clearly deserves to be ahead of Stipe and Overeem in the pecking order. He seems to be taking it like a gentleman, albeit one with a cape and an evil organ walkout music, but it's just not right. It's just not right. Please discuss as you see fit. Uh, it feels weird, doesn't it, to think that there are several worthy options for number one contender in the heavyweight division right yeah. now? That's, that's kind of the opposite of what we normally get. It is. Uh, as far as the question of it does seem like Ben Rothwell is not outraged over it, at least publicly. I would guess that that's because he's been in this game long enough to know what a promise of the next crack at any title is worth in the UFC. That, hey, you can tell Stipe Miocic he's going to get the title shot after he knocks out Andre Arlovsky, but Ben Rothwell and Josh Barnett are scheduled to fight here pretty soon, and... You know how that goes. It, it could easily turn out if Ben Rothwell goes out there and starches Josh Barnett, which would be a, a a job of work right there in itself, it would not be out of the question for Dana White to then turn around and say, you know what, I changed my mind. Ben Rothwell's getting the shot next. Or Cain Velasquez could beat Fabrizio Verdum and we could decide we need to do it again, again, brother. Who knows? I I, I just can see, I, I get, can see Rothwell looking at this and going, you know what? I'm not going to get too worked up about it until they start printing up the posters. Yeah, uh, so Rothwell and Barnett fight each other at UFC on Fox 18. That's on January 30th, later this month. And then you turn right around, I think the next weekend, uh, UFC 196, where Cain Velasquez is going to rematch with Fabricio Verdum. So I think maybe, I agree with everything you just said, and I think maybe there's part of Ben Rothwell that, that also thinks maybe play the good soldier here. And uh, if you beat... Josh Barnett, not only does that uh, put you right there in the hunt, depending on what happens with Velasquez and Verdum, uh, the timing of it all works out, also works out pretty perfectly, just in case there's an injury. Right. You know, if Stipe suddenly Stipe. needs to pull out again with another injury, who do you go to? You got to go with Rothwell, right? Especially now that we know that uh, the future of Alistair Overeem is murky with the UFC since his contract is up. And, and it seems like he's going to be one of the guys who tests the free agent market. And as I think we talked about last week, is going to be a guy who's probably going to get some offers both uh, domestically and internationally. Right. Or another scenario that could very easily happen. Cain Velasquez wins the UFC heavyweight title back uh, and then has to go into surgery again and is out for a long time. The UFC decides to do another one of those interim belts. And then the next thing you know, you could see Rothwell and uh, Stipe 
matched up again for uh, one of those interim gold belts. You never know. Here's a question I'm curious to hear your answer to. By getting pulled from the Rothwell fight due to injury and then getting Arlovsky while Rothwell gets Barnett, did Stipe get the sweeter end of that deal and the easier fight? Well, it kind of seems like it, yeah, especially if he rolls into a title shot after uh, beating Arlovsky, which he did last weekend via first-round TKO, just 54 seconds. Um, But, I mean, it's not as though he planned that out. Like, I don't think any of this could be uh it, it all just seems like dumb luck frankly. no i'm not saying he's a, no it's he, not like a brilliant I know, mastermind i'm not i know you're not trying to allege that he engaged in some kind of conspiracy here but, skullduggery but like yeah just like kind of maybe uh out of sheer luck and and the fact that i don't know maybe the ufc views him as a more marketable guy than ben rothwell it seems like like miocic is yeah he kind of got a, got the best of all that he yeah. didn't even go to dublin like like rothwell did although Maybe that's maybe that was payment in and of itself. <laughs> a vacation to Dublin. I'd like ben to Rothwell. go to Dublin. I'm not convinced it really exists in the fictional nation of Ireland, but I'd like to go there. Is there anything you want to say about the Miocic uh, Andrei Arlovsky fight that we saw this last weekend? Uh, before we came on the air, we were we were talking just about how it seemed like only a matter of time before Arlovsky, who had had been on a big win streak, uh, came crashing back to earth. Yeah, it's also one of those fights where, especially in the heavyweight division. I always never know what to make of a, a really quick knockout like that. Cause it seems like they can always do that to each other. There's always that possibility that somebody comes out there, lands bomb and it's over almost before it starts. And when that does happen with heavyweights, I often feel like I'm not sure what we really learned there. I mean, I picked Stipe in this one anyway. It seemed like, you know, he, he should beat Andre Arlovsky. Um, but it also left me feeling like, I wish we'd just got a chance to see the, the big guys move around in there or something a little bit more, just to get a better sense of, of what might have happened. Yeah, you know those heavyweight fights, they age like fine wine. You get them in there 10, 15 minutes, it just gets better. They start at a level, then just... <laughs> stratosphere. I see what you're doing. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, Dustin Poirier and Joseph Duffy was buried on the goddamnfightpass.com. I know because I paid $9.99 United States dollars to watch it. It was predictably a fantastically awesome fight. Poirier looked good with his blood-soaked ground game and Duffy's hands were a pride to his fictional island. Was it, their con- was it in their contract that they had to be on the internet, or did they just think that Alex Morano had more it factor? Or was it punishment for Duffy fucking up their best laid one watchable fight internet card that Eric Murphy writes? Um, well, I think we're starting to see a little bit more strategery with the fightpass.com. Well, I think the official explanation from Dana White was that it was to put this fight early enough in the night that Irish fans could watch it without having to stay up super late. Which, if that's the case, um, hey, you might be the new Brazil, which was the new Canada, Ireland, if the UFC is really mixing around card order that much just to suit you. Even yeah, what's though, the Irish Globo? It's a good question. Dude, that's, that's probably their specific. That's what they wanted. Yeah. The Irish Globo. Irish Globo it. was all about it. Uh, I think, though, that for one thing, we all know that those hardcore Irish fight fans are probably going to stay up all night anyway to watch... Robbie Lawler and yeah, Carlos I bet, Condit do I it. I bet the Irish fans, very few of them, were like, okay, well, we've seen that. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's tuck in early, and uh, we'll get up and and get after it Got tomorrow. church in the morning. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, um, I think that you're right that there is an element of strategery there, which is that the Irish fans 
will really come out in support of one of their own, um, which means that uh, you know you put this guy on a fight pass card and you increase your odds that maybe some more people are going to buy fight pass just to see an undercard fight, which has got to be kind of a dream scenario if you're the UFC. We talked about the doing with Anderson Silva and Michael Bisping and, and maybe hoping that people will see it as a $10 pay-per-view that's worth it. If you can do that on the same night that you have a $60 pay-per-view, that, that'd be kind of an ideal scenario, would it not? Yeah, it's, it's almost like you're monetizing stuff that you've never been able to monetize before, and, and that's a win-win. Uh, uh, hell of a fight, too, by the yes, way. Yes, the Dustin Poirier-Joe Duffy fight. Uh, let's just say that I've made a personal vow to now know Joe Duffy's name. <laughs> That's all it takes, huh? That's, well, I mean, he looked good out there. It was a, an exciting fight. It does seem weird to me. Did, is it crazy that I think it's weird that Joe Duffy's nickname is Irish Joe Duffy? It seems strange that a guy who's actually Irish would have the nickname Irish Joe Duffy. I feel like for that to be your nickname, you actually need to be Irish American yes. somehow. I don't know. Like they would, like that would be your nickname from Patio Hulahans in of the corner bar at, in, uh, in Boston. Yeah. Like if you're from like New Hampshire or something, then you might go by like Irish Joe Duffy. Uh, it reminds me of the great line from, uh, the great white hype where they build the, the white challenger as, uh, Irish something. And he points out that he's not Irish and they tell him that it's just a boxing term that means you're white. Uh, and that, it, that does kind of seem, uh, weird in this case here, especially because it might not be that special when you're fighting in Ireland to be Irish Joe Duffy. But can I say the, I don't know if you, for one thing, saw the picture of Joe Duffy after the fight where it looks like he has one normal half of his face, one normal eye, and then one alien eye, uh, attached to his face, uh, and still smiling somehow through all that. And then the flip side, you got Dustin Poirier posting selfies on Twitter of his nose looking like it is trying to migrate to the side of his face and couple that with his description in a post-fight interview where he said he knew it was broken during the fight when he reached up and touched it and it felt like a broken light bulb. That is disgusting and an awesome description. It really is an awesome description. Uh, Good work, Dustin Poirier. Can you even imagine being in a in a fist fight and getting your nose broken in the first round and then knowing that you got to go out there for 10 more minutes knowing full well that Joe Duffy is going to continue to try to keep punching you in your nose i cannot imagine it and that is just one of a myriad of reasons why i could not be any sort of fighter do you remember when we were playing in the city championship flag football game and i got my nose broken at the end of the game making yes. a stop it was gross it was gross really gross and it was super cold out Super and like, out, and blood just immediately froze got, to my face. Basically, you got headbutted in the middle of the face, kind of in part of as part of a collision. Uh, and as soon as all of the blood came out of your body, it all froze. So yes. it was like sticky, weird, goopy, frozen stuff all over the snow. And I remember it was disgusting. reaching up to touch my nose and just just touching it just to see how it was, and I could feel like, oh, that's already moving more than a nose is supposed to move, and. It was thankfully right there at kind of the end of the game, which we won and won another city championship, by the way. One but of many. If somebody had said, go out there and continue playing flag football now, I would not have done it. If they had said, go out there and let somebody try to punch you in the face now, I would have thought that they were absolutely insane. It kind of puts that stuff in perspective for you. And do you think also if you're uh, Dustin Poirier and Joe Duffy, you're probably feeling pretty good about uh, your chances at fight of the night and then... Robbie Lawler and Carlos Conant go out there and you're just like, oh, shit. Damn it. I'm not picking that one up. 
Next question this week comes to us from Tyler Peebly or Pebbly. He writes, pop quiz. The cowboy and the dirty bird refers to a, a sketchy off strip Las Vegas male strip club. B, the hosts of a morning zoo crew radio show in Greeley, Colorado, <laughs> or C, a recently discovered B side track written by Warren Zevon. Answer, none of the above. It was a trick question. Don Cerrone makes a quick turnaround and moves up to welterweight to fight Tim Means. Please discuss. Hashtag fuck yes. Fuck yes, indeed. So this is like just exactly what we would expect from Donald Cerrone. To go out and get torched in his lightweight title fight against Rafael Dos Anjos a couple weeks ago and turn right around and go up to 170 to fight a guy like Tim Means. Yeah. You know, and it also seems like it signals a perhaps a not a mindset shift from Donald Cerrone but maybe a mindset return of going all right well we tried that thing where we sat around for seven months or whatever to try to get a a UFC title didn't work out so well so what do you got for me do you you have something where I can go out there and fight somebody real quick and make some money uh, and if I have to go up and wait to do it so what clean slate that kind of a thing it seems like a really Maybe the more comfortable place for Donald Cerrone to be career-wise is back in that fun fight just for the hell of it territory. I wonder, though, about the weight. Do you think it's going to make much of a difference? Do you think that his he's going to be limited at 170 in a way that he wasn't at 155? That's a good question. I don't know. But the few times that I managed to be in the presence of Donald Cerrone, I didn't think that he was a tremendously large lightweight. No. In fact, I always wondered, and it seemed like he indicated at one one point when he was having his beef with uh, Cole Miller, I believe. Didn't he indicate that he would go down to 145? He said he would even stop eating candy. He would go down to featherweight to fight. <laughs> wow, that's yeah, how bad he wanted it, huh? Yeah. Uh, he would go down there to fight uh, Cole Miller if that's what it took. So, yeah, it doesn't seem like he will be as large as uh, some of the other guys we've seen make that jump. Even a guy like Ben Henderson, I think, uh, probably, even if it's just muscle mass, seemed like like he was a slightly bigger lightweight than than Cerrone. So we'll see. I don't know. That could be an issue. But uh, also, I think if that's a question we expect him to ask himself, you don't know the cowboy. That's true. Also, the cowboy and the dirty bird, we should get to work writing that uh, motorcycle buddy duo action comedy film right now. Yeah, absolutely. I I fully support that. Last question this week comes from Anonymous Baruto fan. Okay. He writes, that fucker Baruto would use either of you as a pillow if he was so inclined. Point taken. And totally true. Yeah. Now, I I did. I wanted to follow up on Baruto, who we talked about <laughs> last week. Baruto! And then he went out and got a big win over Peter Ertz at Ryzen FC, albeit an extremely short notice Peter Ertz. Now, who's going to be giving up a little bit of weight? Yeah, just a little bit. We had we had some fun about Baruto last week, but Baruto. After watching Baruto go out there and get this win, am I crazy to think in like an unironic way that Baruto is kind of awesome? Like as a Japanese MMA attraction, a 6 foot 6 Estonian sumo wrestler uh, who will go out there and weather your best punches just so he can get you on his on your back? Because from there you're fucked. <laughs> Once four hundred pound Baruto is on top of you, there ain't no coming back from that. And after watching him fight Peter Ertz, it's not as though at this stage in his career Baruto is like an extremely uh, skilled mixed martial arts fighter. But like, I thought it was kind of awesome, like more awesome than I expected it to be. 
Let's say it is the kind of attraction that could only exist in Japanese MMA. And I, when it is, because it couldn't exist anywhere else, because Baruto fights at approximately 150 pounds over the United States heavyweight limit. <laughs> By the way, Baruto, if you're listening and this pillow idea sounds good to you, let me just say, Chad would make a much better pillow than I would. That's true, but I'm also the one more vehemently expressing my fandom, my actual literal fandom for Baruto. Well, I feel like you're still over there kind of being a dick about it. <laughs> Keep that in mind, Baruto. Well, that's, that's Bruto's going to have to catch me first. That's I feel gonna, like I got an advantage. That's going to do it for Lister Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the aforementioned Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Maybe you can find out if your awesome Listener Mail submission makes it into the Listener Mail rant of the week this Friday. Uh, the Breakfast of Champions comes out every Friday to catch you up on the news and notes and mixed martial arts that we miss from Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the damn podcast. It's short. It's funny. you like it. If you don't, it's super easy to unsubscribe. Go there and sign up to it, for it, to it, about it, get it in your email. In it. Around it today. Right? Sure. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, leading up to UFC 195 on last week's show, we noted that the odds between Carlos Condit and Robbie Lawler were dead even, almost completely across the board. Uh, and I guess after watching them actually do their fight on Saturday night, we have to come back this week and admit the odds makers had this one dialed. Yes, they did. They knew how this was, was going to go, and they were totally right about the competitive nature of of this particular matchup. It's almost as if they have some money riding on being right or wrong when figuring out how these MMA fights are going to go. You're saying they're not just a couple of a-holes talking on their podcast right. and they recorded some guy's kitchen table? They got a little bit of their ass on the line, whereas we do not. That's, I guess that's true. Uh, asses on the line in different ways, though. Let's just say <laughs> we could easily get a mean tweet from someone. That's yeah, true. About the things that we say. Uh, this was an amazing fight. This was uh, an awesome fight, had one of the greatest closing rounds probably of UFC title fight history. Uh, I don't know what else we expected from Carlos Condon and Robbie Lawler. It was probably exactly what we thought was going to happen. Uh, some controversy, a little bit of controversy with the judge's decision in the end. Uh, it seemed like most people on the social medias and in the... Uh, the mixed martial arts media and UFC president Dana White had the fight scored for Carlos Condit. Robbie Lawler ends up getting the split, the split decision nod. Uh, this thing got so close and so awesome at the end that I kind of gave up trying to figure out who I thought had actually won each round. Um, I had it even going to the last round though. Uh, but I had that sinking feeling in in my heart that Robbie Lawler was going to win a split decision before the decision was announced. And that's what it turned out happened. Uh, how did you have it? You know, I think it all comes down to how you score that third round. And I went back and watched that third round again. And I thought I could really make a case either way if I had to. And I think a lot of it comes down to 
your preferences style-wise? Because Carlos Condit, clearly, for most of the fight, was relying on a, sort of a volume approach, didn't want to stand in one place for very long, didn't want to stand there and try to bang it out with Robbie Lawler and give, give him a chance to hit him with a heavy shot, and so was moving around a lot, using uh, his kicks as much to control distance as to actually try to hurt Robbie Lawler, and never really seemed, or, you know, in seldom seemed to really go all in trying to hammer Lawler with anything really hard. It seemed like he was more uh, focused on constantly putting something out there and keeping Lawler on the defensive. And I think that worked for a, a lot of the fight. You saw Robbie Lawler at times go almost, uh, you know, a minute or so without ever really being able to throw anything significant, just trying to get close enough, trying to get himself in a good position to, to strike. And it made me wonder at times, is Robbie Lawler going to give this thing away just by waiting for his opportunity? Uh, and then when he would come in there and really go after him, he'd usually land something pretty significant. And so it kind of depends, what do you tell yourself efficient striking means? It's one of those gray areas in the rules, I think. Like sometimes we, we tend to look at the strike stats and say who landed more or who landed more significant strikes, or we look at damage, even though neither of those things are actually in the unified rules. And so it's, it's a matter of, what do you tell yourself eff effective striking means? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I feel like the argument or controversy about this decision after the fact kind of reveals a rift in the way that each of us watches fights or the way that we as a fan base watch fights. Because Carlos Condit and Robbie Lawler both put on a master class in what they do. And you were right in the way that you phrased it. Like, Carlos Condit went out there with a solid game plan and just kind of tried to overwhelm Robbie Lawler with volume and by controlling, controlling the distance. Robbie Lawler had his action more in spurts. And it, it kind of seemed like, yeah, you were right. Like, whenever he wanted to, to turn it on, he could do it. And, and when he hit Carlos Condit, it seemed to hurt Carlos Condit a lot more than it did when Carlos Condit hit Robbie Lawler. So I think in the aftermath, we have this situation where some people are trying to score the fight based on volume and, and relying on, on statistics, which I don't know if, if that's a conversation that we want to get into today. Uh, and other people maybe are scoring the fight more with their hearts and their eyes. Uh, and are putting more emphasis on Robbie Lawler's power. And to be honest with you, when the fight was over and I was like, oh, I think I bet we're going to get a split decision for Robbie Lawler here. It was because of that power. And I was like, that power is going to impress the judges more than the ridiculous, insane output of Carlos Conant because he threw something close to 500 significant strikes, quote unquote, significant strikes in this fight, uh, which almost won the day for him. But as I was watching it, I was like, you know what? The guys at ringside, the old men's who are watching this are going to see those, those harder punches and, and give him the nod in at least three of these rounds. You know, I felt though about Robbie Lawler after this fight in a weird way, kind of similarly to how I felt about Benson Henderson's run as lightweight champion for, for different reasons, but kind of that same feeling of you're going to mess around one of these days and it's going to go against you. Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly right. And so far we haven't seen him give one away, like you said, but he keeps coming very close. And yeah. I feel like every time before Robbie Lawler fight, I always say I feel like he could lose any of these. And coming out of this fight, I feel the same way, even if even if these two guys end up fighting again. Well, yeah, and I feel like he does it in a way, like we complained about Benson Henderson doing it in a more careful way uh, and not as exciting way. Robbie Lawler does it in an awesome way. It's really fun to watch. And yet at the same time, if you were betting on Robbie Lawler or if you were one of the guys on Robbie Lawler's team, you'd think, man, we should really not play this dangerous game so much because 
he gives away rounds at times, looking for his perfect shot, it seems, or he's kind of a slow starter at times. And he gets to those points where, like, after the fourth round, I was thinking, and he needs to... I think what I said on Twitter was that he really needed to go full Lawler, and then he comes out in the fifth round, and he goes full Lawler. And it's the same thing in that Rory McDonald fight, where you're thinking, man, I don't know about this one. You you might need to really turn it on here, and then he does, and he puts him away. Uh, and, and Or you can even say the same thing about the second Johnny Hendricks fight, where he won the belt. And it's the same kind of situation where you could look back and say, I don't know... Three of two of your three championship winning fights, uh, you might have arguably lost those, and yet I guess we just don't care as much because it's so much fun to watch the way Robbie Lawler does it. It is a lot of fun to watch. We got a, a question from someone. It might have been Brady Carlson this week asking us: Is the Robbie Lawler era the best era in the history of the UFC welterweight division? I think it probably depends on what you mean by best, but. I think you could argue easily it's the most fun, and maybe that means best. I think it, I think we, it feels that way after, you know, what was it, like five year, five or six years of, of George St. Pierre. I think that it feels like a breath of fresh air to have somebody fight with a very different strategy and have somebody just, you know, holding on loosely uh, when it comes to his own title there. Uh, whereas George St. Pierre, it was always just a matter of like this kind of robotic execution of exploiting other people's weaknesses and dominating them all the way through the fight. Right. I, Which think I, always, by, I think by contrast, it seems more fun. Yeah, I always found that fascinating personally about George St. Pierre, but I do also agree that having Robbie Lawler come in and just kind of go balls to the wall, at least in spurts, uh, is refreshing and, and kind of cool to see at the welterweight division. Uh, you did, you mentioned like it seems like Robbie Lawler needs to uh, find the gas pedal and go full Lawler earlier in these fights, which I don't disagree with. Um, but we do have to give a lot of credit, I think, to Carlos Condit for keeping that from happening throughout a lot of this fight. Um, and as he said at the post-fight press conference, he kind of uh, admitted that the, that was the game plan, was to sort of uh, frustrate Lawler and, and stifle him by keeping him out of those, that kicking range and, the, and not staying in Lawler's punching range and not uh, allowing himself to get trapped against the fence where Robbie Lawler could really come in and uncork. But Lawler is just good enough that he was able to to get himself in those positions a few times. So uh, credit to Carlos Condit, credit to Robbie Lawler, too, for, for both going out there and kind of doing what they do, I think. Yeah. Now, what do you make of Carlos Condit talking after the fight about that this might be the last one for him. I wrote about it a little bit in my post-fight column on Bleacher Report. And, like, we're not telling anybody that, that anything they don't know when we say that guys make these these uh, statements after grueling, emotionally, physically taxing losses all the time. Carlos Conant, though, is, a, is the kind of dude, given everything that we know about him, where it feels like maybe he's not bullshitting. And... Maybe this is just reveals my own bias in the sport, but like the thing I always jump to the conclusion, oh, he's worried about his health. And like for Carlos Condit, who I believe is 31 years old, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, it kind of makes sense as a smart guy, a guy who's always been a real student of the game, a guy who's been in the game for a long ass time. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see him walk away, but I would think, and I hope we get to talk about this a lot more in round two, that if you dangled a rematch in front of him, that he would probably come back for that. Yeah. I agree that guys will say a lot of stuff after fights. And he had said that one of the things that he said that made me wonder was he said that in training for this fight, he kind of thought of it as a do or die scenario that either you win this fight and get the title and keep fighting or you lose it. And you know, you're not going to be champion and, and you walk away. And I thought 
you know, maybe that was something consciously or unconsciously he did to motivate himself in training and really make sure he was super focused and, and did everything he could possibly do to win this fight. And in the immediate aftermath, you might not have realized that you were in a way tricking yourself to get the best out of yourself. And who knows if that's the case or not. But I also thought of what Brian Stan said about why he retired. One thing was, you know, worried about the health stuff, the brain trauma stuff. But the other thing was him thinking, you know what? Clearly, I'm not going to be able to do this as my just complete working life career. It's going to come to an end pretty soon here one way or another. And if I'm not going to be the champion and get to that point where I'm making that huge money, then I need to start thinking about what my career is going to be. And the sooner I get started on that, the better. And if you're in your early 30s and you're thinking, you know, if I wait until I'm 38 and then start looking around and going, okay, what am I going to do as a career? Uh, then you could be in a lot worse situation than if you're 31 and you go, all right, now it's t start time to think about my grown-up career now. Uh, and you're right, he is a smart guy, so it would not surprise me if he took those things into account. It also seems like you want to be careful how much stock you put in what somebody says right after a split decision loss for the UFC welterweight title. Yeah, I agree, and hopefully we will pick up that conversation in round number two. As for right now, though, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to do a little master tweet theater. That starts right now. that time again we welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist sir nigel longstock sir nigel how are you good day to you sir i am filled with goop more use more goop than usual yes and many different colors it is all settled in my lungs as part of the christmas flu season wow you seem really cheery about it oh i love the christmas flu it's just like the regular flu only you get it from your family instead of a hooker <laughs> okay well uh since it doesn't seem like Sonardo's going to be with us too much longer, uh, maybe we should go ahead and get started this Master Tweet Theater. I guess here's where you tell me if there's a theme, and I guess there probably is, unfortunately. Oh, yes, sir, there is. The theme right. is friendly and wholesome. I find this hard. To, we're still talking about Twitter, right? Oh, yes. MMA Twitter? Yes, strikingly friendly and wholesome. I'm suspicious, Chad, but let's go ahead. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by WadDog.com, the fastest, easiest way to send money to the WadDog Corporation. Log in with your Facebook account and send $10, $100, or even $1,000 with just one click. Don't have Facebook? No problem. Simply go to our website, enter your account information and routing number, and the WadDog team will take care of the rest. Invite your friends and win points by competing in weekly contests to see who can send Wad Dog the most U.S. dollars, Bitcoin, or Chinese yuan. Wad Dog, we got your Wad Dog. <laughs> see, I was gonna ask if you were in fact saying Wad Dog, which is what it sounded like you were saying, and then at the end it all kind of came around for me. Wad Dog. I'm glad I waited. Glad I waited for the end of that extremely long sponsorship pitch. Log in, click it up, send your Wad. Don't do that. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Who else is excited to see Star Wars? Really? That's how you're going to start us off, huh? Oh, yes. Chad, who else is excited to see Star Wars? Well, that could be anyone, right? And can I say for the record that I feel really good about Sir Nigel using my microphone as he's just uh, <laughs> confessed to us that he is 
full of terrible fluids. Yeah, it seems to be coming out of him right now, too. Uh, that does seem awfully wholesome and full-hearted. I'm going to guess Rich Franklin. Okay. I'm going to guess enthusiastic nerd Joe Benavides. Both fine guesses, both full-hearted nerds, and both wrong. It is Sage Northcott. Oh, damn, it. damn it! Can't wait until his sister takes him to see Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess at least this heralds perhaps the start of a new age on Master Tweet Theater, now that, that Sir Nigel knows about Sage Northcutt, and he's going to probably start making regular appearances. Does that, although, is it starting to seem like he's choosing this, these just to, like, set himself up for jokes? <laughs> well... I don't know. I guess, was there a picture of him, like, standing in front of the Star Wars poster with a thumbs up? There was very much that picture, except he was standing in front of a Ronda Rousey Holly Holm poster. Are you being serious right now? Yes, I am. It was, like, three days ago he tweeted this. Wants to see Star Wars. Still thinking about Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm. Maybe even he gets confused with all the pictures of his phone or of him standing in front of stuff with a thumbs up, and so every once in a while he posts the wrong one with the wrong message. You know what Sage Northcutt could benefit from is is if he had a green screen, don't you think? Yeah, oh yeah. In fact, he might never have to leave the house again. My God. Tweet the second. Just got to see the private showing for Daddy's Home. I laughed the whole way through. God, I, okay, can you do me a favor? I know this is a highly unusual request. Can you do that one again, but really sarcastic? Just got to see the private showing for Daddy's Home. I laughed. The whole way through. See, I like that one better. What is? Can I ask what Daddy's Home is? Does everyone know what that oh, is? Oh, how do you not know? What is it? It's the Will Ferrell, Mark Wahlberg dad comedy that oh. the UFC uh, promoted by splicing in clips into its highlights uh, before the UFC on Fox show the other week. Oh, I totally missed that. Yeah, it was awful. Way more awful than when they splice in like action movie clips, which at least tone-wise kind of makes sense. And this one, instead, it was just like, you know... Clip of Donald Cerrone punching someone and then Will Ferrell making a joke about balls. And you're like, this doesn't work for me. He's the stable dad. <laughs> All right, so who would actually like Daddy's Home is the question we arrive at now. I would have said Sage Northcutt, but crap. I guess I'm going to go now with the other Rich Franklin, Randy Couture. Seems like he'd be into that. Uh, yeah, it does. I'll, I'm thinking this is some real company person for the UFC, don't you think? You're saying maybe Dave Scholler really liked Daddy's Home? Or, I, su- I suppose Dana White wouldn't tweet something like that. How about Lorenzo Fertitta? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go Lorenzo here. Larry. Both fine guesses, both company men, but it is in fact Holly Holm. Oh, well, she just signed a big extension, right? I guess so. And she loves Daddy's Home. In fairness to Holly Holm, she does seem to like most things. That's which true. I mean, at least there's a co-main event podcast to balance out that personality trait. She likes Will Ferrell vehicles. She likes kick a lady in the face. <clears throat> Tweet the third. Anyone in the MGM got a little makeup I can borrow? Okay. So I think this is I think this is a joke. I'm gonna say this is Joe Duffy. Oh, that's, that's what I was gonna say. Uh I guess I'll go Dustin Poirier. Just we'll balance it out. All they right. both could use it, right? Sure. Both fine guesses, both in need of a little concealer, and both wrong. It is Rose Namayunas. Damn it, so you're telling me that was a sincere request? I looked for so long for news that Rose Namayunas had a black eye or something, but nothing. She just she just didn't bring makeup. 
You know, I think they probably sell some around those parts. Oh, that's how they get you. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Hey, at MikeMav22, better have that $2,000 I lent you next time you're in Vegas at Syndicate MMA. You suck at blackjack. Okay, so I guess what happened here is somebody loaned Michael Chiesa $2,000 to play blackjack, which he then lost, and it was somebody from Syndicate MMA. I'm going to say Roy Nelson, he trained at Syndicate MMA. I believe he does. He did last time I saw him there. I don't know anyone who trains at Syndicate MMA. So I'm going to go Juliana Pena since we found out she is a street enforcer last week. <laughs> That's all right. Almost certain to be wrong, but okay. Both fine guesses, both liable to enforce, and both wrong. It is the poet Phil Baroni. Damn it. His words ring through Las Vegas demanding uh, his money. On. What's Phil Baroni doing lending anyone else money? See, I was going to call shenanigans on it that Phil Baroni had $2,000 on him to just lend to somebody, especially somebody like Michael Chiesa. And be like, oh, you'll, I'm sure you'll, you'll pay me back. That's why he needs it back. Someone lended it to him. <laughs> it's an economy. All right, but what else you got? <laughs> That's it. That was the fifth tweet. That was fifth, five already? Seems yes. like we skipped one, but... They flew by. Oh, shoot. Yes, <laughs> we did. Right, mm. let's, let's do it now, <laughs> even though I'm sure the continuity is ruined. Tweet the fifth. It was such a progression, because the last one was neither friendly nor wholesome. <clears throat> but here we are, back to friendly and wholesome. <clears throat> tweet the fifth. My New Year's kiss from this handsome man, blush face... Photo of the tweeter in question kissing a small dog. That could be almost anyone. It could be almost anyone. I'm going to say that's Joseph Benavides. Misha Tate. Hmm. Both fine guesses. Both like to kiss a dog. And both wrong. It is Paige Van Zant. Damn it. Kissing her handsome man, which is maybe a chihuahua or maybe a skipper key. A what? A skipper key, a small shaggy-haired dog that runs and runs and barks and barks. All right, I'm not going to pursue this line of questioning any further. I guess that's it, Sir Nigel. What do you got going on? <clears throat> you know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping an exciting project about a close-knit band of young males who must defend their town from an invading communist force using whatever they have. Knowledge of the woods, the element of surprise, crude weapons, feces, you name it. I see, and what's it called? It's called Red Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And what role do you play? I play Monkey Stalin. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, Robbie Lawler is still your UFC welterweight champion. But right below him, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. You got your man, Johnny Hendricks, scheduled to fight Stephen Wonderboy Thompson here in February at UFC 196. You got Roy McDonald coming back from having his whole shit broke against Robbie Lawler. You got Tyron Woodley, who seems like he's just going to keep getting passed over again and again and again. You got dudes like Matt Brown. You got dudes like Demian Maya expressing a little bit of dissatisfaction with the hankings. You know what's funny about the hankings? You got a lot of interesting stuff in play here. You do. 
What happens next? Well, it is one of the most interesting divisions in the UFC right now. Basically, in my post-fight column at Bleacher Report, I advocated for an immediate rematch, which I think is the right thing to do here because uh, not only do I think that nobody would argue with the idea of watching Carlos Condit and Robbie Lawler do it again, brother, five more rounds, uh, but I also think even though you have a lot of parity and a lot of uh, depth in terms of contenders, you don't necessarily have one other guy who's head and shoulders above the rest as the guy that everyone wants to see as number one contender. You mentioned all of the the potential players here, uh, but it also doesn't it feel like Johnny Hendricks has kind of fallen out of favor recently, especially after pulling out of the fight due, to his, due to his weight cut issue. Uh, Tyron Woodley is, is a guy who has never seemed like the UFC's favorite, which I think is kind of unfair. Uh, he's 15 and three overall, but in Dana White, said he feels like he quote-unquote chokes in big fights. Like, I don't know how many times you can choke when you only got three losses. <laughs> but at the same time, like Tyron Woodley, I think is kind of an unproven draw at this at this level. And I'm not sure how big a draw Robbie Lawler is either. So to put those two guys together in a pay-per-view main event, I think feels dicey. And then Damian Maya, who's a guy that uh, would be the co-main event podcast main event, if he got the chance to go fight for the title. Uh, again, kind of the same thing. Like, I don't know how saleable that fight is. And I, so I think if you if you look around, as long as you can entice Carlos Condit to, to continue to be an active fighter, it feels to me like that's your best bet. I, th- you know, I get what you're saying, and I think that intellectually that argument makes a lot of sense. I think that in the current climate, booking another immediate rematch in another division is not going to be a popular move. Right. You don't want to get into a situation where it's just an endless string of immediate rematches. Uh, and you've already got several coming up. Cain Velasquez, Fabricio Verdum is a rematch. Uh, John Jones and Daniel Cormier isn't an immediate rematch, but it is a rematch, albeit one under slightly different circumstances. We think Ronda Rousey is going to get an immediate shot at Holly Holm, depending uh, on when she's a little more questionable these days. When, but she's, yeah. when she's able to come back. Or even you uh, look at the last UOC welterweight title holder, Johnny Hendricks. He fought Robbie Lawler to win the vacant belt and then turned around and in the next fight fought Robbie Lawler and lost the right. belt. Right, and then you got Jose Aldo, who's obviously, as the 10-year champion, going to get a media chance to reclaim. Wait. Oh, hold on now. Wait a minute. Man, this, you know who's going to end up feeling bad out of this is, is Aldo. Like, no, and like I said in my column, it's you don't want to do this all the time. Uh, but I think Carlos Conant, Robbie Lawler is the kind of thing that you want to make an exception for, especially if... Carlos Condit is thinking about walking away. Um, not necessarily like you want to do that guy any favors, but I feel like it's such an awesome fight. The first fight was so awesome that like if you don't do it now, maybe you miss your chance to ever do it again. Maybe. Um, I'm going to say that especially after we made this kind of let's look at what would be fun and what would sell kind of booking with putting Carlos Condit in this fight in the first place when he only was coming off of one win. Uh, if we're going to do that, and it seemed to have worked out pretty well here, then, damn it, let's keep doing it, and let's give my man Demian Maya his shot at Hobby Lawler. See, now you're just voting with your heart, though. You're just well, out here, heart on your sleeve. And I will lay my Wait, credit card down with my heart. Heart on your gee sleeve out here trying to trying to vote for Damian Maya just because you want to see the jujitsu clinic. By the way, did you see today on Twitter, Damian Maya advertised that he was going somewhere to do a jujitsu clinic and Neil Magny replied to ask if it was okay if he came. I did see that. And I was really hoping that that was sincere. I didn't know if Neil Magny was making a joke there. Uh, I really hope that he does go. Well, I know uh, Damian Maya responded to it as, as if it was sincere. Not that you would expect anything else from Damian Maya on Twitter, but yeah, he hopes Neil Magny shows up, said it would be a, a, a 
Honor. An honor. Wait, no. Ronner? Just Ronner. It'd be a no, Ronner. I don't think it works like that. Okay. Uh, I'm just saying, if you look around at the options right now at Welterweight, I think that Demian Maia versus Hobby Lawler is an interesting style matchup. And it creates one of those situations where either Robbie Lawler goes out there and knocks Demian Maia the hell out, or Demian Maia proves that he has really figured out how to be the jujitsu for MMA guy, wins one back for the old school, brings it back to the grandfather of this shit, gets Robbie Lawler down on the mat, submits him, uh, and then you have yourself a, a whole new shakeup in the division. I, I would, that, if you ask me right now, what fight would I be most excited to pay for as a, a welterweight title fight? I mean, I feel like I just saw Robbie Lawler call this kind of, I'll watch it again. I might watch it. I might prefer to watch it again with a little bit of breathing room in there. But Robbie Lawler versus Demi and Maya gets my vote. That's the one I could get the most hype for. And it's the one you could get the most yes. hype for. I don't know that we're necessarily talking about the, the public at large with that. But I think so it, the public at Nords get on board here. <laughs> I think it, like, as we just kind of talked about, it brings up in this interesting scenario in the welterweight division where you got, you know, four, maybe five guys, if you throw Rory McDonald in there, uh, who could coast into the next title shot without a tremendous amount of upheaval, upheaval, uh, from the public. But none of them seems like exactly the perfect guy, which is kind of a weird situation to have at this weight class. What about? Let me blow your mind here. What about your boy, the Wonder Boy, Stephen Thompson? Let's say he comes out and karate kick, crane kick, Johnny Hendricks side check kick right in the <laughs> face at their fight coming up and knocks him out. Then you then you got Stephen Thompson with, what, six wins in a row in the welterweight division? The last three, the last four over Johnny Hendricks, Jake Ellenberger, Patrick Cote, and Robert Whitaker? Like, if we're just throwing crazy guys out there, it would be kind of fun to watch Stephen Thompson fight Robbie Lawler, wouldn't it? it? Would. Even if Stephen Thompson immediately gets murked. Yeah, I would not, I would not dispute that. That would be a hell of a lot of fun to watch. I think Johnny Hendricks is a pretty tough test for him. Uh, let's see if he gets by that one. Uh, but you're right. If he, if he were to go out there, especially if he were to finish a guy like Johnny Hendricks, that would be really special. Uh, and then, he could really make that case in the wholesome all shucks boy next door way of his. And yes, like if you ask me to imagine what it would look like with Robbie Lawler just head down swinging like he's trying to knock you out in the back of the bowling alley and Stephen Thompson like he's trying to win the all valley karate tournament in there, that would be awesome. I would, I would be definitely be in favor of that. And I think that maybe that's the way you need to look at the welterweight class right now is the what kind of style matchups you're going to get out of there. And I think that's also why Tywin Woodley is probably going to keep getting disappointed until the UFC runs out of basically every other option, until he gets a chance to make it so that they cannot do anything else but give him the title shot. Because I think they're looking at it going like, man, worst case scenario, Tywin Woodley wins it. Yeah. And then we're stuck with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they finally do. Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number three. Uh, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, I don't know if you saw on Twitter last week, Chad, but your boy, Raging Al Iaquinta. I did. How could I miss it? I was tagged in it. In he, the he was alerted to the the running joke that we had about a running a Raging Al drink special down at Cubby Sampson's Bar and Grill. Yep. Uh, he seemed It seemed to, to pique his interest, and so somebody sent him a link to that particular podcast. Seems like he might have even listened to the entire episode, 
um, because he voiced his support for the Are You Fucking Kidding Me segment, to which I have to say, Are you fucking kidding me, Raging Ally Akita? Are you trying to become one of our guys? Are you trying to achieve big homie status? I, I think it might work. I don't think trying. I think he just did. I think he right? just did it. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you That's fucking awesome. kidding me? That is awesome. Ben, I think that we both are going to verge into the rare positive are you fucking kidding me territory this week because I don't know if this is going to blow everybody's mind as much as it blows mine, but I kind of have to say that I think my are you fucking kidding me this week kind of goes out to everything about Brian Ortega. I'm kind of obsessed with T-City. What? Right now. The dude with the man bun. Yeah, I don't know if what We're it brains. says about me that the two two of my favorite dudes from the last week are Baruto and T-City, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> I mean, just kind of everything about this dude, from the hairstyle to the fact that he came out rapping every word to jump around, even though Brian Ortega is 24 years old, and that means jump around came out when he was 15 months old, which would be like if I came out. Singing every word to Heart of Glass by Blondie. Which you would do. Before my fight, which I absolutely would do. Uh, and then he goes out there and maybe appears to let Diego Brandau punch himself out for two full rounds before taking him on a guided tour of T-City, which I was totally into. Now Ortega is 10 and 0. He's undefeated. I don't know, man. I'm just excited to see where this crazy roller coaster takes us. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I may be. You never know. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, this past weekend, we finally got a live, I guess it wasn't live, but we got our first look at the Ryzen Fight Federation over there in Japan. The return to the mainstream of Japanese MMA. What were your impressions, man? How much of this did you watch? I watched a good bit of it. Uh, I guess, you know, as you, of all people know, I was on vacation the first part of the week there, which is why I made you come in and record the podcast early last Monday. Uh, so I didn't see the, the first offering of it when it aired, had to DVR that and then go back and watch it. But I was on the couch for breakfast with Fedor, which, as you mentioned, was not live, but was live to me because I had uh, managed to avoid, uh, most of the spoilers up until then. And I gotta say, I was not, I'm sitting there with my egg sandwich and my coffee and my CME official coffee mug. I got my quilt over my, my legs, got my laptop open, sitting on the couch. And I wasn't expecting much. And then there's a damn light show, and a company executive is coming out with his shirt off, yelling in the middle of the ring and beating on drums with baseball bats and all kinds of other silly stuff. And I might have said aloud, holy shit, this is awesome. It was it was pretty fun from just a show perspective. We questioned how much of that they could really get to come across on TV. And at times... They did. They did get that out there and reminded you, oh, yeah, no, they they do it a little differently over there, and it's kind of cool. So you right now, you're talking about the splendor of lowered expectations. A little bit. Now, I'm also th- talking about the splendor of just a good old-fashioned Japanese light show, my man. I think you're right, and, and I don't think that 
Ryzen Fighting Federation is going to turn into the new Pride or anything. I guess we'll have to keep our eye on that, see where it goes. But if two, three, maybe four times a year, our attention is drawn to this thing where uh, you're going to get some spectacle, you're going to get some pomp and circumstance, and then you're going to get Fedor Emelianenko beating up some nobody. Hashtag would watch, right? A couple times a year. We're not going to tune in for 46 damn shows like we do for the UFC, but... I mean, four shows would be the upper limit yeah, of could, what I, I could see happening that's there. Pr- that's probably the cap on, on Ryzen, unless it, it goes out and, and picks up a lot of a lot of extra free agents. But, uh, but see, yeah, I, the, I hear what you're saying, though. That's, this could have been worse. That's the thing I can see as, like, a best-case scenario for Ryzen is... With the glut of free agents, relative glut uh, of free agents entering the market and some of these friendly deals that it has with other organizations that are not the UFC, if Ryzen could be kind of a, we're going to open up the pop- pocketbook and have an all-star show, and by all-stars we don't necessarily mean just really good people, uh, and we're going to do it a couple times a year, and who knows, you know, Benson Henderson might bite Ben Askren over here. You know, some crazy shit can happen. And also, Baruto is going to go out there and just lay on somebody's head. You know, that could be... there. I think there's space in the market for that right now. Yeah, I mean, especially if you start pulling off some kind of crazy matchups where, you you know, as we have remarked numerous times on the podcast, Bellator, who's one of the uh, organizations that has that relationship with Ryzen Fighting Federation... Ah, uh, they got kind of a senior tour over there. Any one of which could make a hashtag Woodwatch situation with Fedor Emelianenko. Like, even if it was Mohamed Lawal, right, who just won the uh, heavyweight Grand Prix over there in Ryzen. Like, I would watch Fedor fight King Mo. Damn straight, I would. Well, see, that's one of the things I came away with. You know, one of the con, or I guess one of the jarring things for me when watching it was the. Uh, familiar Bellator-feeling uh, English-language broadcast on Spike TV. Because at times, I remember when you used to watch, like, uh, Dream or something on, uh, back then it was HDNet, now Access TV Fights, and at times it would feel like they were just, like, they just took some English-speaking dudes, put them in the arena, didn't give them a clue as to what was going on, and, like, when their video packages would run in arena, they'd basically just point the camera at the big screen. Like, they did not seem to have their own copy at times of the video packages, and if people were talking in Japanese for an extended period of time, nobody on the English language broadcast seemed to know what was happening. And so there was that feeling where you're watching this great elaborate light show and then you're cutting to a really kind of noticeable edit uh, to the two guys we're used to talking to us in English about what's going on. And so when they, at the end of the Fedor fight, were saying, basically, he can't do this again. Like, that was fun to watch. Hey, hey, fine. Fedor's back. It's New Year's Eve. We're all going to have a good time here. But he needs to fight somebody real next time. And it made me wonder, I don't think that that's what they're saying on the Japanese language <laughs> broadcast. I don't think they're saying Fedor just crushed another can right. here. Because I, I agree. After seeing Mola Wall look really good in a, a surprisingly competitive tournament there, uh, go out there, get three wins in one week, uh, knock some people out. I'm like, yeah, Mola Wall versus Fedor would be the fight that you were building to in like a North American fight promotion. Right. I just don't know if that's the way it's going to work over there. No, I, I doubt it because at the very, very end of the day, we're just kind of eavesdropping on this right. stuff, right? Like this stuff is not really for us. This stuff is for Japanese families who are at home celebrating New Year's Eve and they do want to watch Fedor get in there 
and knock out Jaydeep Singh. Uh, and they do want to watch Baruto, and they do want to watch Gabby Garcia. Apparently, they also uh, want to watch Sakuraba just get thumped on to your, yeah, to your hope, sad. Let's hope nobody actually wants to watch that. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about Fedor, because you just kind of brought up the next time he goes out there, he has to fight someone with a little bit bigger name. I guess when you're saying that, I'm thinking in my head, does he? Because I'm thinking like what the Japanese expectations are, what Fedor, what Fedor gets paid to do, although Paydor. That's kind of an awesome pun. How have we never stumbled on this accident. one before? Uh, it was know, right there in front of us all this time. I'm not sure Fedor has the desire to fight anyone really that legitimate, which I'm going to come out and say at this stage in the guy's career, I don't really have a problem with that, even though I do. I would be kind of curious to see him fight someone more legitimate. I just don't know that we're going to get to see it. Although, like, you know, what about uh, Kimbo or Ken Shamrock? Would we watch that or not? I'd be worried about the health ramifications of him fighting Ken Shamrock. But Kimbo would watch. Mola Wall would watch the hell out of that one. You know, And that, I guess, maybe if, they're, if Fedor is at all concerned, and he's not, but... Uh, if he wanted to salvage any kind of street cred with the casual MMA fans back here in North America or, or in other parts of the world where we view fighting a little differently, uh, that would be the fight that's right there in front of you where if you went out there and, and fought Mola Wall, I'd be like, all right, now we're doing something real. You know, it's not it's not Fedor versus Brock Lesnar or Fedor versus Randy Couture from back in the day, but it's something. It's something that you could do right now. That's the the pieces you have that you could put on the chessboard that I'd like. I might even buy a pay per view if you put Fedor and Mola Wall on there. Well, Plus Naruto, you got to. Well, Naruto. I was just going to say one of the most interesting things about this Ryzen thing, aside from the fact that let's all just admit that the thing we missed most about Japanese MMA are those guys in the latex gloves whose job it is to keep everyone from falling out of the ring. Right? Like those guys, that crack team of experts that they've got at ringside. <laughs> or to, to keep you from to grabbing just like on the hold ropes. their hands up there, make sure that you're not going to fall out. I almost thought that they had the right idea when people were grabbing the ropes and they're like, you know what? We're not even going to mess around with trying to warn you and trying to get you to stop doing it or trying to penalize you. We're just going to immediately grab for your hands as if you're a naughty toddler and just going to try to snatch you right off. Of See, it. that's some of that. That's evolution right there. The evolution <laughs> of the biz. Uh, but one of the interesting things about Ryzen is that. We're going to get to see what they do next with Fedor, and I feel like it could just as easily be Mola Wall, Kimbo, the, the Shamrock Gracie winner, or Baruto. Baruto, <laughs> it right? Could be Bar- like, if they said the thing that's next is Fedor Baruto, uh, I'm not going to say I would be astonished, right? Right. Or it could be nothing at all. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they could just fold up fold up the tent and move on to the, never, the next town. Saka Kabara could take the money and pay off whatever debts he has, and then... Who knows? Who knows, indeed. You want to do Just Saying Stuff? We might as well. Then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, this week, uh, I'm just saying, do you remember back in November of 2014 that the UFC kind of made a big deal out of announcing its entire 2015 schedule? I vaguely recall that. Yeah, they didn't do that this year. Huh. They just kind of let that slide. I was looking at the, the events they do have scheduled for 2016, and I noticed that it's only eight during the first three months of the year. Uh, and that includes UFC 197, which is scheduled for March 7th. And that's kind of still totally up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen with that at all. Uh, and it, I went back and checked. It's actually not a huge scaling back compared to the last couple of years. In 2014, the UFC did 10 events during the first quarter of the year. Uh, in 2015, it did nine. And like I said, this year it has eight scheduled. But I still wonder... 
amid all of the talk on this podcast and elsewhere about over oversaturation, are we going to start to see a slow and quiet scaling back of how many events the company does each year? As everybody knows, the UFC did 46 events in 2014. It announced 45 events for 2015, but it only ended up doing 41. Now we're on pace for about 32 for this year. Uh, and even though I bet that the pace picks up a little bit, I wonder if, if we're going to start to see a return to 2013 when there were only 33 events. And I think it's going to be interesting at the end of the year to see how many we get to. And I ask, are we going to start sneaking back toward Chad Dundas's official optimum number of UFC events per year of 28? Dope. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying... I don't know if you saw this, but after UFC 195 at the post-fight press conference, UFC president Dana White showed up and said that, you know, according to him, the Poirier-Duffy fight broke fight pass viewership records. I say according to Dana White because that's how you should report this if you're a member of the MMA media if you feel the need to report it. What you can't do is just turn around and pass that off as fact, which I saw a couple MMA websites doing and a couple uh, MMA media people doing on Twitter. You don't have any way to verify that information. I'm just saying, when Dana White, a promoter who has been known to play a little fast and loose with the truth when it benefits him at times, goes out there and tells you that a fight that he just put on the UFC's streaming service whose numbers you do not have any access to uh, and tells you that it was great, it did awesome numbers, it was huge, it was the best ever. I'm just saying you cannot report that as if it is a fact. It is a thing that a person said. It is a claim they made that you cannot independently verify. I'm just saying, let's not forget that, MMA media members. I just don't think he would exaggerate. No? No. I mean, it just seems out of character for, for that guy. Yeah. To just bend the truth or maybe get carried away. Especially to, time, and now and again. to exaggerate how well his business was going. That's not something This doesn't do. seem in keeping with what we've seen from him in the past. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week uh, to look ahead to what I just, as I noted, kind of a slower than, than expected maybe, January, February, March in the UFC. We'll figure out stuff to talk about, though. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So let's talk about our field trip to Baruto's Farm. Yeah, uh, Barto Tours, Yeah, as it was called on the internet. Is that a typo? Is the name of the tour company a typo? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just Estonian. This is going to be like my second question.